We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. <laughs> that was a good attempt, Kevin. I'm very impressed. It wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. <laughs> we do want to take a quick second to thank some of our Patreon supporters, those who did contribute at a level great enough to get thanked on our show. You want to give it a shot, Kevin? Karen McClellan. <laughs> we also want to thank Sasha and Lisa Grab, Mari Kirsten, Ingrid Powell, and Allison, Allison Jenick. Thanks so much. This holiday season, you want Sock Club! They're delivering a perfect gift experience. Quality American-made socks sent straight to your loved one's door, featuring different designs and a personal note every month. This is a gift that keeps on giving all year long. I love my Sock Club socks. (laughs) Because when I walk around, you see a little flash of color and people say, ooh la la. (laughs) I get an ooh la la. So go to SockClub.com. SockClub. You guys suck Sock Club. so bad. <laughs> Say it again. So go to. Just go to SockClub.com and get 15% off using discount code CRIME at checkout. Give SockClub. SockClub. Oh, my God. This holiday season. SockClub. Sock Promo code CRIME. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and this week, a look at two potential pop culture game changers, Crime Town, the super slick new podcast by Gimlet Media, and HBO's Westworld, which wrapped up its first season this week. Plus, we'll get some listener feedback and updates on some of the true crime cases we've been tracking. Joining me to get all of that done is the host of These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast, my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Oh, that's me. <laughs> Surprise! Surprise! Also joining us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. It's about time to get Stampy's Santa suit out. <laughs> Stampy has Speaking a... of cats. Oh. Does, does Stampy... He doesn't like it. Yeah. No does... shit. He's a cat, Laura. Does the hat stay on? Because I, I like the dogs don't like any kind of hat or hood or anything like that. 
No, he doesn't like any of that stuff. Cats I've don't actually, like anything. yeah, no, he gets really mad. But he posed for a few photos last year in his little Santa suit. You make a calendar, a little stampy of the month calendar. <laughs> we could do that. We could do that actually. Also joining us is our favorite captain of cynicism, the super talented noir novelist Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Season's fucking greeting. Whoa. <laughs> Wow. Wow. It's screwing it up this week. Well, no, it's Crime Town, man. Oh, it is Crime Town. Oh, yeah. That's true. It's all about the Durham swearing. is a little bit like Providence North. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get Scrooged, you get Scrooged at. Well, Toby, exactly. you, you and I know something that the other two people here don't know, which is that our listeners have really been coming through doing their holiday shopping with our Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. Have they not? That is true. They've stepped up their game? They've stepped up their Amazon link game. Awesome. Toby, do you want to uh, highlight a couple of the items that were purchased, perhaps as holiday gifts, by our listeners using the link at crimewriterson.com? Uh, yeah. I can't guarantee that these are all gifts. <laughs> <laughs> Fasmov 20-cavity silicone Madeline pan cookie mold baking mold handmade soap molds and more set of two. A soap mold set? But it also makes cookies. Oh, yes. I just heard cavity. I thought it was something from <laughs> the dentist. soap. Ugh. Yeah, something about a cavity and it makes cookies and soap. All right. Well, All right. It makes both? Either or. It, it apparently does. <laughs> this wait, one, wait, I'm just going to not... stop because I can't imagine a shape that is also both good for a piece of soap and a cookie. Yeah, you know like the shape of like a ladyfinger cookie? It's like an oval. It's the same exact shape. Like one of those shell shell soaps. You mean like soap you get at a hotel? Yeah. Okay. Dude, if you're making your own soap, you're not just going to make it look like a bar of ice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What what else we got, Toby? XO your sister. Fitbit charge. Fitbit charge. HR slim designer sleeve. Band cover. Arabesque. Burgundy slash white. XO, your sister? Was any of that in English? (laughs) XO, it's just an accent and out. Maybe it's hugs and kisses. Well, that's a brand, XO. They make all those like. uh, Yeah. What else you got? Lego superheroes, Superman versus Power Armor Lex. 6862. Discontinued by manufacturer. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh. oh, it's on the banned toys list. Someone has yeah, got a choking so. hazard. <laughs> well, somebody's psyched. It's going to be a collector's item. Spoiler alert. Um, uh, Lex doesn't win. <laughs> Unamami family fitted striped pregnant women breastfeeding nursing dress with baby. <laughs> with, with baby? <laughs> with baby? For $27.44. With baby? You buy, you buy the nursing dress, you get the baby for free, apparently. Let me guess. Made in China? It's unclear. It's $27.44. Wow. It's a good price for a baby. Yeah. You get the, this the is turning into an SVU episode very quickly. Oh All right. Um, upgrade Craze Pony, four pieces. 220MAH. 1S 3.7V 50C lipo battery for tiny whoop blade Inductrix <laughs> Nano QX MCX2. What kind of blade? It's a whoop blade. <laughs> what does a whoop? I didn't see that coming. Hold on. Nobody sees I, it coming. <laughs> I'm patting her on the back. I get it all out. Get it all out. Get the poison out, Rebecca. Oh my God, I'm going to need more wine in the Mary glass. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Toby, thank you very much for uh, curating such a splendid variety of items. Yeah. And thanks so much to our listeners for doing your holiday and apparently other kinds of shopping using the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. Keep it up. Keep it up, please. So, Kevin, I think we're going to kick off the episode this week with a little bit of our segment that we like to call True Crime Podcast Updates. <laughs> Gets better every time. I really does. took a cue from Toby there. And whoops. Well, this week, Justin Ross Harris, that defendant in the Breakdown Season 2 case, he was sentenced to life without parole after being convicted on multiple counts of malice murder by a Georgia jury for leaving his son Cooper in a hot car. Now, last week we talked about that guilty verdict on the show. We had some pretty strong opinions on Harris's culpability. I personally got a lot of feedback for what some saw as my defending Harris's sexual behavior. And we also heard from a lot of listeners that agreed with us that the jury may have made a mistake. But we also got one really interesting point of view from a listener who sent us a voice memo. So let's just listen to that. Hi, Crime Writers On. My name is Jamie and I'm from Florida and I was listening to the episode today where you were discussing the verdict in the Justin Ross Harris case. And I just wanted to say that I don't think that he maliciously intended to kill his child and left him in the car. However, if I was texting on my phone and allowed myself to be distracted and got in an accident and killed another person, I would still be criminally responsible for that. If I was at home and got dis- allowed myself to be distracted on my computer or on my phone or watching a TV program and my child got into something and accidentally drowned or ate something they weren't supposed to eat, I would still be responsible for that. He is a parent. He is his father. It is his job to protect his child, regardless of whatever else is going on in his life. Yes, he has the right to have sex with whoever he wants. His wife might disagree with that, but, and that should not affect him as a dad, but he allowed it to affect him as a dad. He allowed that distraction to be more important than his child and the safety of his child. So I do feel like he should be punished for that crime. Thank you. I love what you guys do. Your podcast is amazing. All right. Some strong opinions from Jamie there. And it's she a got, take. She got angrier as it went along. She did. And then she had a sweet ending. She did. It's a take I hadn't thought about before, though. Um, so what Jamie says is that uh, perhaps Harris should be held to account to the same standard as other parents who have been sent to prison because neglect or distraction led to the death of their child. Now, Laura, what do you think of uh, Jamie's opinion on this case? You know, it's kind of interesting. I I have to say, I tend to agree in some regard because, you know, think about it. Like, I mean, every day, you guys, I don't know about you, but me, I fight with my son to get him to wear a coat in wintertime. I'm like, oh, my God, they're going to come for me because I'm (laughs) neglecting my child, you know. (laughs) But, you know, it is he definitely was distracted and people do get in trouble by the same token. Somebody that's distracted driving or texting isn't going to go to jail life in prison. So, I mean, he's he's already being punished, but there is, I think, something to be said for that sort of neglect, which clearly was at play here, but isn't something that right now would really pertain legally in this case, I don't think. Well, I think it's an interesting point of view, too. Kevin, do you have a thoughts about that? Yeah, Rebecca, I, I don't think in my defense of Justin Ross Harris last week, I think I said that he should get off scot-free. I mean, certainly... He broke the law with the texts, texting to a young girl, and that's all not a redeeming quality. My thing is I I don't think it's murder. I don't think it was a premeditated murder, which is what he was convicted of last week and what he was – and he got life in prison for this week. But could he be held responsible, you know, in another way criminally? Yeah. You know, if you did something in your car 
where uh, your child was killed. Sometimes it's an accident, but sometimes investigators can determine that you were criminally negligent. Right. I think that's what she's saying here. Yeah. So, yeah. Is it possible? Yeah. I, and I think that perhaps if the investigators wanted to go that route, I might have as if I were on the jury, I might have been you know, more swayed by that because yeah, he did. He was distracted. But there are so many cases of of this. And it's, you know, a, a proven phenomenon that people have driver fatigue or they they have this thing where they they just forget what they're they're doing and they do forget that they have kids in the car mm-hmm. and it happens enough that it's an it's an issue and right. you know i mean i think that that makes itself evident right you know i kind of agree with her that it's possible that justin ross harris should be held accountable for a different kind of crime right. or looked at but the idea yeah. that he you know had malice in his heart and thought that the way to get out of his marriage uh, so he could have more illicit sex was to kill his child in the backseat of the car this way. I just, I don't buy that. Right. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess it's just, I think it's two different things, which compares it to, you know, driving while texting and then also, you know, texting and having a kid drown in a pool. Driving while texting's illegal anyway. In some um, states, not in all, right? In some states. It's not reasonable to text and drive, right? And I think, what's the legal liability for a kid drowning in the family swimming pool? I think it depends, parent- right? I think it's well, de- it basically you know, depends. Th- there was a case in New Hampshire within the last 10 years where the woman, the mother, was on the internet while the kid was in the bathtub and he drowned. And she was held accountable for that. For what? She, I mean, what, For what murder. Was her- negligent homicide. For murder? Oh, negligent yeah, homicide. Ne- negligent homicide. I'd have to go back and look. But yeah, I mean, and she was clearly distracted by something else while her kid was in the bathtub and didn't even realize that he had drowned. Hmm. See, so that that to me makes the case for that. You know, I think that that's that's a roughly analogous situation. I think the texting and driving is a somewhat different situation in that when you're doing that, you're very clearly endangering a whole bunch of people, like everybody else is on the road. Right. Whereas texting and not paying attention to your kid in the worst circumstances will end up badly, but 99.9% of the time, you know, everything will be fine. That's just like another thing that people do. So, yeah, I mean, I think she makes she makes a good point. And if you can be held criminally negligent for being on the internet while your kid drowns in the bathtub, then I, I, I think that might be a good argument. He's definitely morally responsible. Well, I... I don't, that's like, I don't like the word spot. morally. I don't like that word. And this is this goes to like the criticism that I got for, you know, we got a long email from a listener who, by the way, it was a very thoughtful email saying that I, I made the point that, you know, just because you're bad at relationships doesn't mean that you're a killer, doesn't mean you're a bad father. And she said, well, if you're bad at relationships, you are a bad parent. And I actually only agree with that partially. I think that we have norms over what's moral and what's right mm. and what makes you know, a good parent and a good relationship. And I think those norms have really permeated our culture in a way that is a little bit arbitrary. If you look at other cultures and the way that they don't judge certain behaviors, no one's calling, for example, let's just call out, no one's calling the French bad parents because, you know, they have a different attitude towards sex and love than Americans have, for instance, or, you know... That's that's just kind of what I mean. I don't like seeing those things mixed up with something called morality because it's arbitrary. I mean, I think that negligence and morality are two different things. I mean, you can say that our society has decided that you as parents are responsible for taking care of your kids all the time. I don't disagree with that, right? That's just what we've decided. So it's negligent not to. And it's maybe criminally negligent if you do it to a degree where they die or are injured. 
more I, I just I think the word morally just gets so mixed well, up in this case with the sex stuff and that's why it bothers me well he, he has to take some ownership from it you're right it's separately it you know the criminal case and whether he's criminally liable that really is sort of a different discussion and I will agree with Jamie in the sense that he has to take some ownership for the fact right. as opposed to it being a complete accident which by the way as, I do think we know he does feel that mm-hmm. he, but that wasn't the crime he was charged with we heard him on the right. tapes if you pick the baby up out of the car and it slipped out of his hands and he fell and the baby was died I mean that's an accident and right. you still take some ownership of that, but, but nobody would hold you. But I think he does take ownership. We heard him on the tapes blaming. He knows it was his fault. Sure. But that wasn't the crime he was charged with. This wouldn't be a story if he was charged with negligent homicide. It wouldn't be think. a story if there wasn't all the sideshow stuff about the sex uh, thing. That right. made it salacious. You're probably right. Anyway, it's a very interesting moral dilemma. I loved getting that voice memo, very thoughtful and passionate voice memo from our listener, Jamie. And uh, if our listeners want to send in voice memos when they feel thoughtful and passionate about things, please uh, go to our webpage, crimewriterson.com. Go to the blog section. We have directions how to do it. Or just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to crimewriterson at gmail.com. I have a non-update update. update. Uh, You wanted to read that again? True crime podcast update? True crime podcast non-update. Update. It's a non-update because I don't know if you guys have noticed, we've been getting a lot of notes on Twitter and via email about someone knows something. Mm-hmm. Apparently there's a season two that people are really liking and I think maybe Toby might be listening to it. Toby, listening to season two if someone knows something? Yes, I am. It's good. All right. Maybe we should talk about it. What do you think? Maybe next week? Maybe? Yeah, I started listening this week. All right, so we are going to talk about season two of Someone Knows Something next week, I guess. So, Kevin, you and I have some catching up to do. That's fine. But apparently there's been an update in the season one case of Someone Knows Something, the season that we lovingly have called... Nobody Knows Anything. (laughs) I haven't listened to the update. Have any of you listened to the update? No. No. All right. (laughs) Well, oh, thanks for bringing it up. That's why it's a non-update. I had a sense that none of us had. I got an email about it today. Well, next week, fair listeners, we're going to be talking about Someone Knows Something, the CBC podcast, season two. I don't know. Season one, fool me once, shame on you. <laughs> fool me twice, shame on me. But Toby says he's liking it, so. No, not season two, but going yeah, back. the update. On the update. Nobody knows anything still. <laughs> we yeah. don't know, guys. The update could be 20 minutes of a campfire. We don't know. Right. All right. Okay. All right. So finally, one more quick listener email from Kate. She writes, my husband and I just watched The Staircase. We never heard of it until it was mentioned on your podcast. See, we are the kingmakers, guys. We are. Uh, we found it fast. Fascinating with the insight into the defense team strategy, the effects the trial had on the family. I changed my mind several times about Michael's guilt. So this is her question. Why did the family not clean the blood off the staircase walls? It appears as though the blood stains remained there for the entire documentary. Even if it was an accidental fall, this seems like a very macabre thing to keep in the house. We talked about this. Especially when everyone is continuing to live in the house. So is there a legal reason or an investigatory reason? Kevin, do you want to just answer that question? I think, and, and I think we have talked about this, and I think our answer was they needed that for trial because there was going to be a view. A jury view. Yeah. Yeah, and I yeah. think that they kept it there thinking that it might be useful 
later. So yes, there is a legal reason that you can't uh, paint over. You know, I actually don't know that specifically. Why can't we just paint over it? But I think that they wanted, the defense folks wanted to preserve that so people like Henry Lee and other experts could come in and examine everything. The ceiling and, you know, Dr. Lee's take was that there's no cast off. Mm -hmm. Like if someone was to get hit, you would expect an arm going back and there'd be blood on the ceiling. Right. You're going into a paint job six months after the death, and you've missed that. So. Right. And we should point out there was another staircase in the house. I didn't have to use that staircase <laughs> right. every day. Anyway, well, thank you so much for your email, Kate. And we can't respond to every single email we receive, but we do love getting them, and we read every single one. So keep them coming. CrimeWritersOn at gmail.com. Now it is time to move on. This fall, powerhouse podcast producer Gimlet Media dropped a few new podcasts into the audio sphere. One that got my attention when I first heard about it was Crime Town. For two reasons. Season one takes place in New England in a city with a fascinating backstory. But it's also being produced by Mark Smerling and Zach Stewart-Pontier. And they're the team behind the true crime HBO docuseries The Jinx. So, listeners, I'll give my usual spoiler trigger warning here, but with a caveat... I don't think this is a story that could actually be spoiled in particular, but if you want to stop right now, go back and listen to the four episodes of Crime Town that are out there and then come back to this podcast. Go for it, but I I really don't think we can ruin it. I don't. I don't think we can ruin it, right? No, it's not, it's not a murder mystery. Or something. It's, not, it's just a great story. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, let's start with the thing that I think everyone is talking about about this podcast. It sounds completely different from any podcast I have ever Heard now, Laura. I'm going to start with you. What do you think about the production style of Crime Town? It took a little adjusting to. I have to say right off the bat that the theme song that they are playing, I love it it's by awesome. the Goat or whatever. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's like I feel like this is the podcast version of The Sopranos or something. I love it. But you know, it, it's definitely it's very sleek. It's very polished. You know, and I think we have so many. I mean, we we are listening to new podcasts all the time for this podcast. And I think with so many out there that their production value can really make or break a podcast. I mean, you can have a podcast that has a great topic, but if their production isn't great, you're probably not going to listen if there's all these other stories out there. But this one almost to me feels like I'm listening to TV through a podcast. I'm not sure how I feel about the car revving up and driving (laughs) at one point as they were going out on a hit or to find somebody that they were going to knock off or something. But for me, I really, you know, I like it. Uh, It took me a while to get into the pace of it. Like there's certain times when they're using music. I'm not sure, is this the end of the story? Are we just having a little dramatic pause so we can think about something? But overall, it's very different to me in the style from any other podcast that we've listened to. It's almost like listening to like a stylized TV show that's made for like audio listening. Yeah, I I think it's really game changing in that way. And I think it... I don't know. I think it might be ushering in a new era of production value that just hasn't existed before. Toby, what do you think of the storytelling style of Crime Town and the way they use sound and, and just the way the podcast is put together? I've got kind of mixed feelings. I think for the most part, it's good. I think as far as using like the sound effects, like this is the one podcast where I think it's kind of worked just because everything else is so slick that it doesn't seem really out of place. I think what it misses is that, I guess until now, like a lot of the true crime podcasts we've been listening to, part of the charm has been this this idea of 
a reporter and their producer and the sound person or whatever, but a small group of people, you know, addressing a crime or, you know, what have you. But it's like this small group and uh, you're kind of following their story. Whereas in this one, it's just sort of mentally, I picture like a corporation behind behind the making of this. Right. I mean, it's so slick. The stuff that they've got, like the sound clips that they have are unbelievable. Like at first I, I was thinking this this has got to be actors mm-hmm. because it's so clear. So yeah, I mean, I, I like the podcast. It took me a little bit to get used to it. I think it loses a little bit in, you know, being able to identify with the people who are hosting the podcast but they can't all be like that. They can't all be. You can't. Of, you can't always say, have like an audio models. concierge taking you through the story, like their personal story, and narrating it for you. Is that that's what you mean? Well, it isn't. It isn't a true crime podcast in the sense that we've had journalists looking into unsolved stuff or investigating and then the promise is that we're going to take you on a journey as we dig deep down into this. It's a completely different thing. And it is a story. And I will say, okay, Toby's right. The sound effects, I think it actually works in here. I'm I the biggest it. critic of it. You know, I'm also kind of with Laura. Sometimes. It takes getting used to. It does take getting used to. It's a much different pace. I, I tell you, I don't even know the name of the host. I, I listen to all. It's, it doesn't pop into it my head. Ma- it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter right. because that's not what it is. It's a. We're hearing a story. There's no mystery to this. It isn't like, did the mayor really do? We we're just going along on a journey here. This is all about a story, and I love the. You know, there's this whole side story about the bonded vault heist and. You know these two wise guys, and it's it. You know it only tangentially deals with Buddy Cianci so far, so far. But it's a great journey, and it's it's not offshore or in the dark or missing and murdered or any of those other. Puck. It, it's not a radio journalist. I'm going out, and you're going to listen to me knock on a door. It's just telling a story, and the fact that I didn't know this till you you did the setup for it, but that the producers. Did the jinx mm-hmm. tells me a lot about their need for high production value that they right? I mean, there are some things that to me, this new slate of podcasts that Gimlet has put out. I've heard a lot about Homecoming, which is the audio drama they, that they just put out too. Mm-hmm. They good, are, too. I think, changing the game. So I've sort of been waiting, and you know, I'm a fan of Alex Bloomberg and what he's doing, Gimlet Media. But up until this point, to me, and I've said this to you before, Kevin. It's very much to me sounded like Alex Bloomberg created another public radio station making more podcasts that sounded a lot like other podcasts that were out there. I mean, I'm a fan of Reply All, obviously, big fan of the show Startup and mm-hmm. the shows they're doing. They haven't sounded different than what one would make at a public radio station or a company like This American Life or a PRX or any one of the sort of you know ancillary sort of public radio sphere companies. This show, to me... Sounds like, okay, this startup called Gimlet Media is doing something completely new and they're doing a cinematic podcast. It is like the Goodfellas of podcasts. I think Gimlet wants to be the HBO of podcasts. Well, he said that before. Oh, he did? Oh, shit. Okay. (laughs) Clearly, you don't listen to startup, but that is that was his plan when he created this company was to become the HBO of podcasts. There you go. I don't feel like they've been bringing it until this show. They've made some very strong, very good shows that don't necessarily stick out in the way this one does. And that's why even the stuff that I'm not used to yet hearing like that whole thing with the recreated phone call they did. I just appreciate the creativity and that it is so different 
from anything else that we've heard. So I, I do want to talk a little bit about the, the characters in the show. We're introduced to Buddy Cianci, who I think, you know, the rest of America who doesn't live in New England might not feel like they know him a little bit as well as we do. We just know him, like, from the news. But in episode two, we'll get back to Buddy. In episode two, however, um, that's where the podcast really takes the turn into Goodfellas territory. We're introduced to these two wise guys, Bobby and uh, Jerry, in episode two. It's Jerry Tellingast and Bobby Wallison. Jerry Tellingast, I hate but love but hate to say is like my favorite character in the podcast. And Toby, I'd love to know your thoughts. You know, we have a guy here who is a bad, bad guy (laughs) and yet is amazing. And by the same token, you can hear the guys making the podcast also equally charmed by him as they talk to him. Do you feel that same conflict I do at how likable you find this guy, Jerry Tellingast, this wise guy? I don't really find him that likable. You know, I think the danger with this podcast and I, it, is that there's such a sort of popular culture view of wise guys, you know, and I think a lot of it's Scorsese movies, but there's a certain expectation you have and you've seen movies in which they have been, even if they're not like the sort of like unambiguous heroes, but they're, they're the centerpieces of these movies and they, they talk in a very colorful way and things like that. But those two guys are mass murderers. I mean, they, they've both killed a bunch of people. So no matter sort of how charming they come off and how kind of down to earth and in some ways friendly they seem, I mean, they're bad, dangerous guys who've, who've done a lot of really bad things. And one of my worries about the podcast is making them seem kind of cute. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think they, they went too far in that direction, but they went far enough that if you were predisposed to feeling that way, you would. And I would see if I was, you know, living in Providence and knew somebody who they'd killed or just was around during that time and knew that those were dangerous guys, I think there would be some kind of disconnect. Mm -hmm. Now, I sort of, I think my empathy for them, my liking of them has to do with two things. We'll get to the second one in a minute, but the first thing is the sort of lost boys narrative that both of those guys have. They both had you know, very sad or in some way disconnected fatherless upbringings. They talk about being very lost. They talk about being preyed upon, even though they don't describe it that way, by Raymond Patriarca, you know, the the guy in charge of the New England mafia. Laura, I know that you, like me, kind of like these two wise guys, right? Do you have the same feelings of conflict that I have about it? I do. I have to say I like the mobsters. And, and I know what Toby's saying. Yeah, they're, they're killing people. I, they're horrible. They're killing people in horrible ways. But by the same token, there's something sort of romantic in a way about this story about these fatherless boys who find this father figure who, while he may be this horrible crime boss, also has this sort of affectionate side. And also they're like, you know, he's taking care of everybody in the neighborhood. He does more for this city than anyone, you know? I mean, I I like this window that we get into the dynamic of how this mob world works. So, yeah, I am conflicted because I'm like, you know, they're not just killing people. They're like torturing people and, you know, doing awful things to them. But by the same token, the story about the one guy, I can't remember which one it was, who's, you know, the first memory he had was his dad, like, throwing him on the springs on his bed. Yeah, it was Bobby. Yeah. Yeah. And then he's sleeping on the bench. On that. And he's... 
You can't be two years old and remember anything. You can't remember that. You can't know, unless, you know, no, no, no. It's just it's it's unless he wasn't actually two. I mean, well, he yeah. age. So there is some bullshit. He might have been older, but there was just something about that story where it's like you, you, this, this guy has had this horrible life, and yes, now he's doing horrible things, like horrible things were done to him. But it's just there's something that fascinates me about the dynamic of the mob. They have a code, first of all, which is always very interesting. Yeah. Any sort of group that has a code that lives by a code, <laughs> I think we're always fascinated by. Yeah, like the podcaster code. Yeah, but Kevin, you've talked an awful <laughs> lot about certain types of stories, uh-huh. and the fatherless boy narrative is a narrative that pops up again and again and again in your favorite you know, storytelling arc model uh-huh, that uh-huh. you talk about, the sort of yeah, yeah, okay. lost boy narrative. But I'm just saying, the story isn't these two wise guys. This, that, I, I that's think, the I culture think that, yeah, that but plays I, I into think, it. I think we're way distracted about what this story is. It's about Buddy Cianci. He is the centerpiece. Well, let me ask you another yeah. question then. Because my second thing that I love about the wise mm-hmm. guys, that I also love about Buddy and the tapes we hear from Buddy, is the unbelievable eloquence of these guys. They're dropping profanity left and right, but in between the profanity, they are dropping this Elmore Leonard-esque dialogue that- It's great to listen to. It it. may be cultivated, Uh, but it is great to listen to. You know, maybe the best piece of dialogue I've, you know, heard in a long time came from one of these mobsters' mouths. He's like, if you're going to be good, be good. If you're going to be bad, be good at it. That's a good piece of dialogue. Raymond Patriarch and never heard, but he helped more people than he hurt. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a good. That was a good moment. Look, I, I'm just, and I understand Toby's concern. I'm just not bothered by it. Maybe that makes me a horrible person. You're a horrible person, and maybe I'm hypocritical because of things I've said about other podcasts. I am just going for the ride on this one. Yeah, it's just everything about it is slick, but not in the way of like uh, wink, wink. It's not substantive slick, or that we're pulling one over on you slick. You know, it's it's very polished. The storytelling is really great. They ended up getting some really great figures and the subject himself although he's passed away he lives on in these tapes and he is also charming everybody in this is charming as hell which makes it a fantastic story to listen to a masculine story to listen to too yes or no is this the manliest podcast ever uh probably (laughs) yeah i mean i don't know ever but of the ones that we've that we've about crime you know, a nonfiction podcast, yeah, probably is. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Toby, was we got a really interesting look into, there was an episode called The Making of a Mayor, and we got an interesting look into just how politics worked in Providence, which was basically like everyone was a Democrat. If you were able to collect votes for candidates, you got a job and that you got to have forever, no matter how poorly you performed in that job. And there was that amazing example of the guy who ran the parks department talking about the zoo employee who continued to feed the dead tortoise when it was dead for three days. But this look into the political machine that ran Providence, Rhode Island for so long did that feel stale and anachronistic to you? Did it feel a little bit like maybe some of those vestiges live on in politics today? I mean, I, I just love your thoughts about that episode in general. It didn't seem stale to me, but it's it seems like it's the classic like Chicago, you know, where you had the daily machine. I mean, I think you had the Democratic machine in Providence. And I think one of the little quotes they play again and again is, is something about how there's two governments, just like the real government, and then there's the crime government or, or something to that extent. And I, that seems to be true in Providence. I'm not sure if that's true nationwide. It didn't seem stale. It's certainly the reputation that Providence has. I actually, um, my son had a lacrosse tournament in Providence at Brown. 
and we went to lunch afterwards and I, I don't even know where it was, but it was in this little like sort of walking street and we were sitting at a table and like right next to us was these guys, like the guys who are in this podcast. <laughs> it's like these old like 70 something guys and they were talking just like these guys and throwing in the F-bombs and people were going up to him and like one guy in particular, you know, saying hi to him, shaking his hand and stuff. I was just watching him. I was like, man, these are like old mob guys. And they were spending the whole time, they were talking about uh, Joe Girardi, who's the manager of the uh, Yankees, Mm -hmm. who's an Italian guy. They're they're spending most of the time talking about Joe Girardi, but also Joe Girardi's mom and what like a great woman she is. Hmm. So it was was definitely, like that was one of the things I was thinking about (laughs) when I was was listening to this is I was like, I I have limited experience in, in Providence. But this totally nails it. It gives a good sense, I think, of what that city's like. I think one of my favorite moments in the podcast was when we heard the um, Republican convention speech from Buddy Cianci <laughs> in 1976, I guess, right? 76, when, yeah. When he says, uh, I am not Italian. I'm, I'm Italo-American. It- no, Italo-American. Italo-American. Tell you something. Italo-American. I'm Italian. Yeah. I have never heard the expression Italo-American, well, except for did. in this podcast. How about gyno-American? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Laura, uh, we talked about the fact that this podcast breaks format, at least for us. There's no reporter sort of guiding us through the story, digging in that we then develop a personal relationship with. Do you miss that? Or do you think this podcast can stand on its own without that and just be its own thing and be brand new? I think it can stand on its own. It's such a different format. It's such a different type of podcast that I don't really need that. So I would love your thoughts. Are you going to continue listening to Crime Town? I'd just love your sort of wrap up thoughts on it. Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways. And why? And are you going to continue to listen? Yeah, um, thumbs up. You know, I actually, um, one side of my family is from the Providence area. So Ooh, I, I definitely. Oh, which side? Yeah, Explain yeah. so much. <laughs> well, Nan, my, my beloved Nan, who's 99. The dark side. Who's, yeah, very feisty. Well, she was like the first woman president of the East Providence Citizens League or something. So, what the hell is um, that? Yeah, you have to get some buddy Cianci stories from her. Supposedly, it was in. Well, yeah, the, the Prince of Providence. They all call, oh, the Prince of Providence. You know, they all, all the aunties talk about him. So, I am definitely going to keep listening um, because this reminds me of a show that I used to love. It's different, but did you guys ever watch um, City Confidential on A and Oh my God, yeah, A and E, yeah, that was a that, yeah, I do remember. And that show. Um, would take a murder case, but it would examine the culture of the city where the murder took place Mm -hmm. and and it was just and I loved that show Um, it was really interesting I always love learning about different cities when I go places so I'm definitely going to keep listening Toby are you still in with Crime Town are you going to continue listening I'd love your thoughts on the show in general yeah no I give it a thumbs up I realize that I'm supposed to be cynical but I've given like (laughs) thumbs up to like the last like six or seven shows (laughs) like it seems like any of these episodes could stand alone I think you could listen to episode number three without having listened to episode one and two mm-hmm. and still be able to orient yourself and get something out of it, which is a little different than all the other ones we've listened to, which are really, you sort of need to listen to them in order. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really good. So Kevin, I didn't ask you, you know, the formula so far for mm-hmm. podcasts has been, you know, we get a crime, we don't know anything about it. We get involved in the investigation an attempt to solve the cases made with a reporter. So is this a gamble? To, to do a podcast like Crime Town and do it so differently. Yeah, I think it is because I think audiences expect that sort of I'm the narrator and I'm taking you on the journey and here are my bona fides as an investigator and we're going to solve 
this unsolved crime. We're going to uncover this mystery. So to come out, first of all, take a story which is fully fleshed out already. You know, there's no secrets here necessarily. And then to dig in and give something like this is not only a different kind of story, but the way they present it where it's so heavily produced mm-hmm. with even the little goat sound effect. You remember hearing the little goat sound effect? <laughs> when you had the goat in jail. The goat in jail. <laughs> yeah, those jail situations were insane. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely breaking the format. So is it a gamble? It might be a gamble. Not as big a gamble as playing past the pigs by winning moves games. <laughs> it's the classic game of chance featuring two tiny adorable pigs and it sold millions of copies since first hitting the scene in the 1980s we talked about past the pigs last time we got a lot of feedback about past the pigs we have and it's a great game for the whole family but i have to say yeah some of you out there have confessed that you have used past the pigs in ways in college that you should not have. You mean have. as a drinking game? <gasps> as a drinking game. Yeah. Oh no. And i will Wait, say you haven't how much do you have to drink for the leaning jowler? <laughs> <laughs> jug, 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 jug. Quite a bit. On behalf of winning moves games, I have to say I am shocked, shocked. That's off-label use. Off, yes, that is off-label use. This is a great game for the whole family. You can take it anywhere. Two adorable pig-shaped dice. What more do you need, America? Why must our institutions of higher learning corrupt this game. <laughs> you it, seem really affronted by this game. I'm a little affronted by them. I mean, it's a perfect party game because, you know, it comes with a handy dice cup and you get a score pad and pencil and it's, you know, you can take it with you. But apparently people have been taking it to the frat house <laughs> and playing it. But all those That's folks, all you folks that drank to it, remember, you got kids now. <laughs> and they want to look up to you. So you dig out past the pigs better yet buy a new past the pig set one that doesn't smell like jägermeister <laughs> i give past the pigs because it is a lot of fun whether or not you are a junior or you're just a junior it's good clean fun it should be clean fun <laughs> shocked at you all remember these pint-sized porkers pack a big punch <laughs> and will entertain family and friends of all ages yes all ages. So past the pigs. And at all steps. At all steps. <laughs> Step one, put the pig dice down. <laughs> past the pigs is available at toy stores everywhere. For a special 20% discount, visit winning-moves.com and enter promo code CRIME right now. That's winning-moves.com and promo code CRIME. crime. For a 20% discount. Please get it at the website and use promo code CRIME so that we get credit. You know, Kevin's story kind of reminds me of something that happened to me this summer. We were having like a rainy, it was like a rainy summer day and we had some friends over. So we were playing a card game and the daughter says, oh, we're going to play this game I learned at school. It's called El President. And she's playing the game and all of a sudden, oh, like, oh, wait, yeah. game is called Asshole. <laughs> you got skipped drink, asshole. And I'm like, oh, no, I can't tell these kids to drink. Oh, no. Yes. Our kids learned that game as asshole and taught it to us. Actually, I think we told them it was called <laughs> touch hole. No, we, we ended up using that word because oh. we were playing it on vacation in front of other people. And we didn't want them to think we were horrible parents. You thought horrible. touch hole was better than asshole? <laughs> well, a touch hole is a real thing. I think in the canon, right? Yes. That you light the canon. Yeah, it's called the touch hole. Yeah, I thought you would know that, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> the 
historical fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> All right, history geeks. All right, yeah. speaking of history geeks, Toby, I have to ask you a question before we roll into the second part of our podcast. Have you seen sure. even a minute of Westworld? I have. Oh, I saw Toby. I saw like eighty minutes. Oh, nice. Whoa. Oh, he's getting going. All right. All right. So I, I, well, I, do you want to know what happened? Is I watched the first episode with my wife and my son, and my wife didn't like it, and my son loved it. And I was like, oh, cool. Well, we can watch it together. And then I went to work and came home. And my wife said, well, you know, he I think he watched an episode or two off in his room. <laughs> and it turned out he watched the entire season. <laughs> <laughs> so this won't exactly be like our Downton Abbey conversation where you had never seen it ever. No, but we might be spoiling it for Toby, which is ironic because Toby has spoiled so many shows it's for true. our listeners. It's true. They get let's, angry. Let's try to keep our Westworld conversation on the storytelling plane so that if people haven't seen any of it yet, we're not going to say, like this person dies. Let me keep it a little bit more okay. heady. Okay? okay. All right. All right. So let's talk about Westworld, shall we? Dies. <laughs> oh, Kevin. <laughs> but he comes back. They all come back. Shut up, they Kevin. all come back. So the pop culture hit of the fall was HBO's $100 million series Westworld. Turns out to be the most watched first season of an HBO series of all time. Mm. The premise of the series is that guests pay tens of thousands of dollars to come to a western-themed amusement park filled with a cast of robots called hosts. In this world, every day the hosts are either killed or have sex with the guests, and then they're hosed off, patched up, and returned to the park to do it all over again the next day. Anthony Hopkins' character Ford is the park's creator, and the robots are all following the narrative loops created for them. We see two hosts nudge by humans to become self-aware to appreciate the terrible way they are treated by humans now this show is disorienting it's got flashbacks flash forwards characters that may or may not be robots themselves it's also beautifully shot incredibly ambitious and looks like they spent every penny of that 100 million dollars to make just on the opening credits yeah, it's hundred million dollars on the opening yeah. credits. Oh, is it got the best theme song ever? Well, I don't care for the theme song. Well, I'm just going to say, well, I love the credits. The yeah, you know, the opening credits is a great place to start. You don't like the theme song, but Laura, you do like the theme song. Discuss. I love it. Well, I love it. <laughs> it's very haunting, and I, I think the actual the whole opening credits scene where we have like the skeleton galloping on the horse and the three D printers playing. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I like it. I think it's a beautiful convergence of technology and humanity. The opening credits. I. I I'm agnostic on the music, but I love, love the visuals. And by the way, as I proved to Kevin, because uh, he didn't believe me when I just saw it and I knew, the credits of The Crown on Netflix were also done by the same person who created the credits of this show. That sort of slow motion, oh. organic oh, they did, movement. They did Game of Thrones, yes. which is the one everybody knows and would be wowed by. Yeah. So, Kevin, you don't love the theme yeah. music, but you like I don't know, the mean, No, I love, the, I love the opening credits. Yeah, <laughs> Check. One of the things I want to talk about, obviously, we're all... Toby, do you like the credits? <laughs> yeah, or something you can contribute to. Yeah. All right. Yeah, they're okay. They're okay. Now, I wanted to start by talking about stories about robots, okay? Mm-hmm. So the sort of founding father of the modern story about robots is Isaac Asimov. 
He wrote in 1942 in a short story called Runaround that there are three rules of robots. This is sort of his robotic theory. It's called the three laws. Number one, a robot may not injure a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm. Number two, a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with law number one. And a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with law number one or law number two. Now, in basically every fictional story that we've ever seen about robots, these rules are broken, and that's what leads to the narrative conflict. Kevin, when you started mm-hmm. watching this show, you we're immediately made aware that we're watching robots. Right. And we're immediately made aware that something's wrong with the robots. <laughs> yeah. Well, I find you know that every story about robots is either that the robots come back and do something horrible to humans or it's the horrible way that humans treat the robots. Right. Those are the big themes. And it starts off that you know, it's these robots are treated inhumanely mm-hmm. by the humans, where they're like livestock and they get washed down with hoses and then, you know, patched up. And they're used as punching bags and masturbatory devices for these gas tools to drop tens of thousands of dollars to Imagine that this robot is actually drinking whiskey with them and coming on to them. Right. Was so, there a question in there? I well, forget. So is, yeah. it, is it in between? Is it in between sort of the humans treating robots badly or robots doing something horrible to humans? Does this show well, hit think, some sort of a weird spot I, in between? Well, I think it evolves. Right. I think, you know, less about, you know, robots, and maybe this is what all robot stories are about, but this is this is a story about, you know, man as God and God as creator and whether or not... God's creation has free will of its own. Right. And I think this is what we're, we're looking at is that these robots, even when we think that the robots think that they are rebelling, I mean, we find out that they have been programmed to go on this rebellion or to try to break out or spoiler whatever. Alert. Or spoiler. <laughs> spoiler. Sorry, Toby. So do they have free will or do they not have free will? And I think you know, it's a bigger question. That is a bigger question. Now, Laura, one of the things that got me hooked on the show is that in episode one, we know we're watching robots, right? And yet Mm -hmm. you feel a tremendous amount of sympathy for the robots immediately. Do you think that's Mm -hmm. a testament to the acting of the show or the writing of the show or something else that's wrong with us, maybe? You're broken, Rebecca. (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) Seesaw motor functions, Rebecca. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know who you are? Uh, You know, I don't know. I think that it's just... For me, it's just really a study in human nature and the fact that these robots have been fine-tuned to the point that they can have empathy and compassion and reasoning. You know, I think it's a study because you start to realize that the robots are actually behaving better than the humans in this show. So you start to see the true depth of human nature when people feel like there's really no consequences for their action because these aren't real people, even though they are so real that they actually seem more real than some of the humans in the show. Really? I have to tell you, I got, well, yeah, I mean, I got hooked because Rebecca had mentioned the show a few months ago and I just watched like, it was like a random episode and then I just, I couldn't stop watching. Now, Toby, Westworld breaks a lot of the rules that I think we all have all agreed on the show, especially you are sort of narrative cheats and pet peeves. I know you're only one episode in at this point, but 
it becomes clear to observant viewers almost from the start that we're watching a story play out in multiple timelines. But even more important, sort of a narrative killer in a lot of stories like, you know, I think about Lost, for instance, Mm -hmm. is that because the characters can die and come back over and over again that, you know... There are no stakes. Yeah, the stakes should feel lower than they do. Is there ever a story where it works? I mean, it works in Westworld. I mean, is there some sort of magic there where you can make the cheating work? I think what's cheating... Is if you're if you're writing a book and you have something like that come in to kind of make the plot work or to save somebody or or something like that, I think if that's sort of part of the premise of what you're doing, I think that's a different thing altogether because you know you're commenting on something by using that as a device, you know. So it's not it's not something that's kind of saving you. It's something that's sort of central to the story you're telling. It's like Crime Town, and, right? That if you're going to go for it, it's baked in, and that's why it works. Yeah, and it's you know, I, it's funny that you mentioned Crime Town because I, I started listening to that Homecoming, and Homecoming is very much like that. Yeah, Homecoming is very much like you don't know things are out of sequence, and, and you you, you kind of catch on, but it's it's not in uh, in time order. So I, I think that, you know, a thing where that happens is a Groundhog Day, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like he keeps waking up to the same that. thing. And I mean, that is the story, mm-hmm. right? That That's how you're commenting on things is by having it happen that way. So I think that I, I think that's fair. And, uh, you know, another one that plays with that a little bit is uh, Memento. Oh, yeah. Have you seen that? Great, yep. great movie. Yep. That's a Christopher Nolan movie, right? I think that's right. So anyway, you can't just kind of throw it in there. Right. I, I think it's what it basically comes down to. Like Kevin said, if you're all in on that concept and that's what's going to be helping you comment, then I think it's all good. I was thinking the same thing Toby was thinking about the Groundhog Day because the character that I was most fixated on, as I'm sure a lot of you were, was Ed Harris's character. And I felt like he's sort of like the Groundhog Day character in the show because he's been there for so long. He's like circumventing things before they happen because he knows exactly what's going to happen. But it's also playing with the timeline when he's doing that. So I'm like... At what part is this really happening? You know, when they're finding the picture and everything. And I think that for me was one of the things that I really enjoyed the most was that playing with the timeline. I love the Ed Harris evolution of that character, too, because at some point in the series, you see him doing all these. The beginning, you see him doing all these really ruthless things. And you just immediately think like bad guy. And then you see him doing all these really ruthless things. And then you understand eventually that he's done all these things before over and over and over again and he's just trying to take shortcuts Mm -hmm. to play the game as Mm -hmm. quickly as possible to get where he's going as quickly as possible and then there's all these really weird moments where you realize wait a minute are these really ruthless things because these are robots that he's interacting with and it kind of goes to the one word that you've used to describe the show Kevin which is disorienting yeah talk about that yeah the the different timelines and it isn't obvious at first that this is what's going on that you're watching multiple timelines. I kind of knew it in the first episode, uh, but I know that it was something that was considered a fan theory. But I, yeah. I thought that they, they did a decent job hinting at it. Like, yeah. What I loved about the show was that all the fan theories actually did come to fruition. I don't think they were supposed to be as much of a mystery as we think that they were supposed to be. Yeah. You, you know, I, I I thought that there were two, and I just sitting here, I realized w- what it was. It was like one thing that was seemed like a loose end to me that I could never figure out and thought it was a, a quirk of the storytelling was we 
see a, a robot go to sleep and then, you know, they're in the lab naked getting grilled or whatever. And it's like, how do they get from there to there? And it's like, oh, I can die and go. You're left with the impression that, you know, when they shut down and go to sleep or whatever, somehow they're transported. But I just realized now that it's two different timelines. They go to sleep and it's a flashback. Mm-hmm. And it, it isn't like they were all of a sudden instantaneously transported which you you think at first. Well, the one piece of transportation we haven't seen on the show, because we did see how humans get into Westworld, mm-hmm. we've never seen how the robots go back and forth. Because well, like it'll be like, Dolores, time to go back. We don't see actually how she walks back into the world. They just take one of those weird elevators. Like We don't know. Yeah, we see yet. them come to get mm-hmm. the defective but robots. I do love but... the behind-the-scenes stuff when they show how it actually works. That, to me, is like... Yeah, just like a Disney World. I do so have all cool. that. So yeah. cool. Like the tunnels and the stuff. The thing, but you were... Yeah. Just to get back to your one thought, Rebecca, about like the stakes... That's one thing we as viewers are willing to suspend disbelief that the robot will show fear or a different kind of emotion when we know that they've only been programmed to do X, Y, or Z. The thing I never got is why, which made like for so much pathos, was that the guests, the humans, suddenly fear that the robot, you know, when they got the, when like a, a robot pulls a gun on William, you know, and he's running away from the army or whatever, as if he's really going to get hurt. We already know that you only, the humans can kill the robots. The robots can't hurt you. So you've already lost a lot of the stakes. I don't understand why if you go through and somebody kills 50 robots, that's somehow horrible. Kevin, I Um, am scared of you when you pretend to be a zombie. And I know you're not a zombie. <laughs> I, I think that there is. I think that would be extremely frightening and a very visceral experience. And it would feel like a murder to kill something that looked and talked and felt just like a human being, even if it wasn't. They've done a lot of studies on just people playing video games and the physical responses that that you have when you're just playing on a screen and the stress levels and things like that. And I think the second thing is, and again, I've just watched one episode. But my sense of it was, is that this whole thing with the the robots being wiped and coming back and there being some emotional value in the viewer as watching them being killed is that, you know, they're really sort of putting forward a really dark kind of view of humanity, right? Mm -hmm. So when social controls are kind of taken away and it's just like, you know, go for it. And people show up and they want to they want to have sex and they want to kill. They want to rape and you know? they want to kill. Yeah. Some of them want to rape. I again, just watched one. Yeah. But I think that's, you know, part of the the sort of having these scripts and having it go over and over again. The sense you get after one episode, at least, is that they write these scripts knowing that people are going to exhibit certain behaviors mm-hmm. that are like sort of wildly amoral. Right. We also see families going to Westworld. <laughs> Apparently there's a whole experience you can have there with your kids. <laughs> Taking pictures with the people they shot. <laughs> Do they go into that? Is it like... Uh, no, it's just sort no. of on the periphery. Yeah. And- Come on, Johnny, let's go on up and see Maeve. <laughs> oh, God. Well, let's just talk... Give that pretty girl this gold coin. Watch what she does for you. I, I do want to talk briefly, before we wrap up our attempting to be spoiler-free conversation yeah. about the amazing storytelling in Westworld. Can we just talk about the acting mm-hmm. briefly? Evan Rachel Wood 
I mean, I've seen her in other things. Uh, you know, she was, I think, most of America got to know her when she was um, Marilyn Manson's mm-hmm. girlfriend for a couple of years there. But she's, you know, she's been in some sort of edgy thing. She's always been one of those actresses who... I've never seen her in a likable role. Yeah, she was in True Blood. But she yeah, played like, she's, the Queen yeah. of Louisiana and so forth. She, to me, is completely astonishing in this part. Kevin's been making fun of me because I talk about how the people who play the robots in Westworld, they have to do what I call face acting, like incredible face <laughs> acting and Kevin's like, that's just called acting. <laughs> <laughs> but the ability to sort of be in that state and then do the thing where turn off your emotional affect and they can all just do it and it's so good and between she and um, Tandy yep. Newton mm-hmm. and Anthony Hopkins and you know all the incredible actors in the show the the two women I think are the standouts that everyone's talking about ever ever Rachel Wood and Tandy mm-hmm. Newton, but Laura you know there's been a, some criticism I think that there is with a lot of these HBO and other premium shows there is a big feminist storyline taking place in the show where the women are the characters who are sort of ascending to power the ever Rachel Wood character and the Tandy Newton character in particular, but there are also mm-hmm. some very 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 graphic scenes of violence against women in the show. And that seems yeah. to be sort of the push and pull with media right now. Have you been feeling that way at all as you've been watching the show? Yeah, and I think it was it was really interesting. I don't know if you saw this. Is it Evan Rachel Wood? Evan Rachel Wood, yeah. She actually, um, she's the one who plays Dolores, and she was in the news in the last week because she was feeling somewhat conflicted about her character. You know, obviously there was a lot of violence against her character, and she actually came out and talked about being sexually assaulted. Did you see this? I did, Yes. Yeah. And I think almost kind of a little bit in defense of her character, but to say that she could kind of empathize with this character, um, because, you know, it's definitely the role that the women are playing in the show. Yes, they are now gaining voice um, because they're being programmed to do so. But in the beginning, just some of the scenes are pretty graphic you know some of the sex scenes that were pretty graphic and the you know the one I think one of the sex scenes she was like having sex and ends up getting killed um, one of the other characters sorry spoiler there but so it's definitely a balance but now in the conclusion we're coming out the other side so I thought it was interesting that there was also this sort of public statement you know, that kind of tied into what was going on in the show. Yeah. I mean, I just really, really loved it. I found it fascinating, the whole production, the way it was put together. I didn't think I was going to like it. Even even like the first episode, I was like, I don't know how this could be a series. But I think in the end of the final episode, we got some hints about how it can continue as a series and be mm-hmm. interesting. And I'm definitely going to tune in for season two. What about you, Kevin? Yeah, I, I don't think that I actually know all that happened. I think if you gave me a quiz <laughs> on what happened in Westworld, a lot of times like, I don't know what happened. A lot of times we were talking about it is, is that we have become so used to certain storytelling tropes and formulas that I think that it, it used them to sort of play with our own expectations. Mm-hmm. You know, in a way, this is, this is a story about story. Mm-hmm. In storytelling, because it's all these robots have these narratives that are programmed into them. Right. And it's explicit that it's a story. It's, about it's story a, right. And it's like we have one last story, you know, and what is that going to be? And I, it kind of comes back again to, I think, for me anyway, to sort of this God complex about, you know, I mean, what does the control room look like? It's a bunch of people and it looks like a little tiny earth, right? Like, you know, this command center as if one were God looking down. They're not, there's there's no answer or anything that they're looking down on in the middle of that ant farm that they've built in the middle of the the control room. 
But I do think it's kind of like, here's the idea, and we have the power, and we're granting you the power. You're our creation, but we're going to fuck with you a little bit. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do this, and we're going to all of a sudden, you know, have these people come, and today you're going to get killed. And tomorrow you're going to get raped, and the day after that you're going to get killed and raped. Right. And uh, in between, we'll just hose you off and send you back out. And so I think that that, you know, that sort of God complex thing is a really interesting theme. And at one point, do you, and I mean this in the figurative, figurative uh, literary sense, when do you kill God? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when do you kill and when do you make a, a sacrifice? But what does that mean? And also, I mean, I, I do think that it's about the story messing with you. It reminds me mm-hmm. a little bit of, it's going to sound like a very strange comparison, but uh, I'm not talking about the movie. I'm talking about the Broadway show, um, Into the Woods, the Stephen Sondheim show, yeah. which took familiar mm-hmm. stories and warped them in a really dark way. Uh, I saw that musical in high school and... It was a sort of critically, like, some people hated it, some people loved it. But then over time, it's really come to sort of stand up because it's about story and it's about our expectations of story. And it's about what happens to you as the consumer of a story when the expectations aren't met and things, there are consequences that have never been part of this story that you think you know before. To me, that's what Westworld's about. We think we know the robot story. We think we know the Asimov rules. We think we know what HAL 9000 did in uh, Space Odyssey. We think we know what happened in, you know, AI. And to some extent, like Jurassic Park is a robot story, you know, creature we created. We think we know what that Uh, uh, looks like. But when the uh, pirates of the Caribbean break down, uh, the pirates don't eat customers. Exactly. That's my Jeff Goldblum impression. Life finds, finds a way. A way. <laughs> I have to tell you, Rebecca, I was in Into the Woods in high school. Nice. Who'd that you was, play? Yes. I was the giant's wife, so I had a very loud megaphone. Rebecca was, was Little Red Riding Hood. I did. I played Little Red Riding Hood in a little mini version of Into the Woods in high school, yes. Give a little, come on, sing a little bit. Um, nope. Sing not a little doing, bit. Not going to do sing it. Sing a little bit. Not Hello, little it. girl. What's your rush? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, Toby, are you going to finish watching Westworld after uh, we've now talked about it on the show? Do you think that you're going to be able to find the time, carve it out, so that maybe we can go out for a drink and discuss it a little bit more? Oh, uh, we can go out for a drink? Yeah, we'll play past yeah, the definitely. pigs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on it. No, yeah, no, I, I was definitely planning on it. I um, hope our listeners aren't too angry with us about any spoilers we may have dropped, and maybe we beeped a couple here and there, and you'll <laughs> do that in post-production. Now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime... True crime podcast update. The crime of the week. True crime. <laughs> <Sock> club. <laughs> <laughs> In St. Mary's County, Maryland, at least one badly behaved beaver is ready for some holiday shopping. (laughs) According to the Washington Post, the paper of record, the beaver was apprehended at a dollar store in Charlotte Hall, Maryland, where the St. Mary's (laughs) County Sheriff's Office said the animal entered the store, apparently browsed the selection of artificial Christmas trees, and then promptly trashed the place. The suspect attempted to flee the area, the sheriff's office said in a statement, but the intrepid beaver was apprehended by animal control and released to an animal rehabilitator, hopefully not just to be released into the wild, but to be taught basic shopping etiquette. Now, to our listeners who aren't familiar with the story, look up Beaver Trash's store and do an image search (laughs) and just look at the pictures. 
It's all you need to know. Wasn't this your joke from last week? Some beaver in a dollar store? (laughs) I know that was a stripper in a dollar store. Super outtakes, bitches! (laughs) So I'm firmly in the, quote, real camp and not the artificial camp when it comes to Christmas trees. Artificial beavers? It sounds like this beaver agrees with me that artificial Christmas trees are not ideal. That being said, I do know there are reasons why some people choose artificial trees, so I don't want angry emails about it. So I'm not going to be too judgy. (laughs) But here is my question for the three of you. Are there some trappings of Christmas, decorations or treats or traditions that you think should be criminalized or at least be given up for wild beavers to have their way with? Laura, what do you think? This is a tough one. I'm not a huge fan of the lawn inflatable decorations, but I know a lot of people with kids like them. I'm going to go for Christmas doilies. I'm all set with Christmas doilies. (laughs) The time has come and gone. I don't even know what a Christmas doily is. What is that? You know, like doilies. They they go all over and then they make them into like Christmas themed doilies or they hang them. And it's oh. just uh, the doilies need to go. It sounds like an old lady thing. That's what I'm saying. The time has come and gone. <laughs> OK. What about you, Toby? Are there any uh, trappings of Christmas that you think should be criminalized? Besides Zagnut bars? <laughs> <laughs> now, I would say uh, any country Western cover of Christmas tunes. Uh. <laughs> What about Vanessa Williams' Christmas tunes? Uh, Sorry, Kevin. That's all right. I was going to start playing it in the mic. <laughs> yeah, you can throw Vanessa Williams in there, too. <laughs> and uh, whatever that Paul McCartney one is. Simply happy. Yeah, exactly. One of Christmas time. As a matter of fact, I think you could almost put just about any the like, pop, country, sing you know, Kenny song. G. The Phil Spector Christmas album is my only like non- normal Christmas music. What about the Michael Bolton version of Little Drummer Boy? <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> well, that goes without saying. But that's, In your collection? That'll be passed down through the centuries. <laughs> what about you, Kevin? What trappings of Christmas should be criminalized? I think they play that Michael Bolton Christmas CD to the robots when they're <laughs> hosing out their cracks. First of all, can I just say that I would have loved to have seen the reaction of that beaver when he went to that first artificial tree. Yeah. Like, oh my God, I thought this was one. <laughs> this tastes horrible. <laughs> I actually like garland, even though it's kind of gone out of style. What are you describing or, when you're describing garland? Garland has different meanings to different people. Garland Garland's is way in style. Uh, well, yeah, I have. Oh, no, I know the one he's talking about—the old school '70s garland. That, that that's kind of shiny, and it's the a rope. Stuff. Yeah. Yes, yes. Tinsel Ooh. is the thing that I, which is like the loose yeah. strands that you sprinkle. Oh, I think the, the that's that's the worst. You know what's the worst for is cat owners. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, like I was about to butt. say, <laughs> it's nice seeing those things hanging. <laughs> <laughs> How much tinsel have you pulled out of those cats' butts, guys? Be honest. Uh, none. I don't, do, no I don't do tinsel. No, no tinsel. Now, Kevin, for a lot of people, garland is actually like real greenery, uh-huh, like right. in, a, yeah. in like a rope. But to you, yeah. garland is- like ropes is, of uh, evergreen stuff. Exactly. And that's way in style. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Yeah. In. But I'll just say, when I, as a kid, my parents had garland around the tree. You know what, what they uh, called garland what, around the tree? Yeah, what they yeah. called? Yeah. yeah, they got it at Sears. All right, they ordered it from the Wish Book. <laughs> it came in the mail three to four weeks later. Uh-huh. You know, before we had the Amazon link at CrimeWritersOn.com, right? And they would just you know run it around, and so sort of like the triangle with the thing going around of it. That's sort of like 
the visual shape of a Christmas tree to me. And I can't convince my wife to get garland. So that's cool. I'm cool with everything else on the tree. I'll do the garland. You will? Sure I will. As long as it's not like some trapping from Dolly Parton's A Christmas of Many Colors, I'm down. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not made from like... You should decorate your closet in the basement with some garland. (laughs) All I got to say is Christmas of Many Colors. All I saw was white people in the Christmas of Many Colors. (laughs) I think we have to take that one out. Now I'm leaving it in. Leaving it in. Taking the risk. All right. Well, I think we should wrap it up on that note. Laura Bricker, if our listeners want to tweet to you, find you online, maybe give you some advice about whether or not you maybe should reconsider tinsel for your Christmas decor, how can they find you? I'm at Laura Bricker. And I have to say, I forgot last week to mention all the cat Twitter photos I get. So I want to thank Julie this week. She sent me lots of pictures of her cat, Dewey, like Dewey Decimal, posing above one of our summer book club picks this summer from I Am Pilgrim. And I also appreciated the hashtag she used, the hashtag long live Laura, hashtags and firefighters too. <laughs> well, Mazel tov. All right, there we have a cat of the week. <laughs> Toby, if our listeners want to tweet to you and maybe give you some schooling and some modern day Christmas songs that you should perhaps add to your collection, how can they find you on Twitter? At TobyBallNH. And also throw in a little plug for Homecoming, the Homecoming podcast, which is fiction, but it's really good, I think. And we are going to talk about that in the future, I believe. So our listeners should catch up on that, as well as Someone Knows Something Season 2, which we're going to talk about next week. Next week, Someone Knows Something. All right, Kevin, if our listeners want to tweet to you and perhaps... At Kevin P. Flynn. <laughs> and if you want to send me a tweet or follow me on Instagram, you can find at me... Rebel Lavoy. At Rebel Lavoy. You can also find us on Twitter at Crime Writers On. Email us questions and voice memos at crimewriterson at gmail.com. Sign up for our newsletter and buy stuff using our Amazon link. You can do that at our website, crimewriterson.com. Bookmark that Amazon link. Make it a shortcut on your smartphone. It helps us out when you do your holiday shopping there. And you're doing holiday shopping. We know you are. (laughs) Please review the show on iTunes. It helps keep us on the charts. But you know what also helps? Tell your friends to listen. We don't have a marketing team or an ad agency. You fair listeners, you are it. If you love Crime Writers On, check out our sister show. These are their stories, The Law and Order podcast. You don't have to be a Law & Order fan to enjoy it, or at least we've heard that that's the case. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. the podcast factory we keep in a closet in our basement. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. I don't know how the internet feels about how you liking the Vanessa Williams. What child is this? Oh, they like mash it up with um, Hark How the Bells. Is there a verse where she sings about being naked as Miss America? They apologize to her for that. They should have, because that was bullshit. Jazz guitar. She's very precise in her singing, and it bothers me. She's like Kathy Lee Gifford, very pageanty. A lot of precision. I like a singer who can keep the meter and not embellish. That's very white of you. No, I think it's the way the song is. 
you can get a little groovy uh, in a jazz riff because you can kind of fun. Oh, you loaded up a, a clip to play. Why don't we try it out? Cool. I feel like I'm on hold. <laughs> Your call is very important to us. <laughs> T-Dog's up. Go ahead, bud. Let's bring him in. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Your call is very important to us. Please stand by for the next available DJ. <laughs> I don't think he's there. I'm here. <laughs> You're being subjected to uh, a very swinging songs of Ke- sounds of Kevin's favorite Christmas carol. Para en español, primero dos. <laughs> Thanks again to Sarah for sponsoring today's episode. Our friends at Sock Club provide a little gift with a big impact that is sure to make you look like an expert gift giver. Each package includes quality American-made socks, a customizable gift message, and a printable membership certificate so all your last-minute shoppers are covered, too. Just for listeners of Crime Writers On... Sock Club Club. is offering 15% off subscriptions. Go to Sock Sock Club. Club. Really? You didn't know that's... Okay. Go to SockClub.com and use promo code CRIME at checkout. Give Sock Club. Holiday season. I love the Sock Club. We love it so much. SockClub.com, promo code CRIME. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay.